Welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway. And I'm Cameron Conway. And this podcast is a very personal look at personal finance in Canada. Hi, everyone, and welcome to It's Personal Finance Canada. I'm Christine Conway here with Cameron Conway. And today, we wanted to follow up our talk last week about the uh, stock market indexes. We talked about passive investing in the most common ones that we look at here in North America with a uh, conversation about active management and why someone would choose that over passive management or maybe not why, but when it's a good time to use one versus the other. Oh, yeah, exactly. So last week it was the set it and forget it investing. Now we're looking at is it worth paying a fund manager or another company to help pick and choose the stocks so you can have a better return at the end of the day. So it's the the good, the bad, the ugly, the things that can help and the things to watch out for when dealing with actively managed portfolios. Right. And if you make it all the way to the end, we'll talk about how to choose actively managed funds yourself if you do decide that that's the way that you want to do. So it'll give you some criteria and some of the things that I look at myself when I'm doing comparisons and when I'm selecting between the literally thousands of funds that are out there these days for building a portfolio. Yeah, it's, it's knowing what to look for because you do not want to know how many balanced funds there are out there right now. <laughs> way too many. Okay, so let's get right into it. So why do you think it would be important for some people to choose active over passive management? Right. So we've looked at passive management and choosing index funds as kind of the set it and forget it way to do investments. And when you're looking at active management, you might want to consider it if you're looking for an asset mix or all I mean by that is a blend of stocks that is different from the index that you'll be following. Because even if you choose an actively managed fund, you still need a tool of comparison. So there still be some index that you'll be following just to make sure that your actively managed fund is pulling its weight and making those fees that you'll be paying worth it. Well, exactly. And you need more than just an index because a lot of people are more specific in what they're looking for. Like we talked before, we've got like socially responsible, we've got energy focused, finance focused, healthcare focused, bond focused, index focused, and just plain stock focused. So a lot of it lines up with what is your comfort level with the markets and what exactly are you trying to pull out of this? And that's going to kind of help you figure out which of these funds and which of these managers you want to work with to kind of go along the path that you want to go, but you just need a little bit of help along the way. That's exactly right. Every fund out there has a specific investment objective. And if you look at either a fund profile or a document called the Fund Facts, which is a compliance piece of paperwork that'll really take you through who the fund is for, what the risk level is and uh, what it's designed to do, they all have this investment objective at the very kind of top. And it's going to tell you what are the goals that the fund has to reach and what are the parameters that they have for their investments. So for example, it could have some constraints built right in to the fund mandate that you need to be aware of as an investor. Let's say you were looking to invest in something called a monthly income fund, well, you would need to know that that fund is going to have the stock portion 
focused on dividend-paying stocks only. So they're going to be setting a filter that is going to filter out maybe funds that have a more of a growth-oriented style or that are looking for more momentum. And they're going to be focusing on larger, more stable companies that pay a dividend and have a history of increasing that dividend. And there might also be a mandate there to generate income. So that will go into the filter as well. So it's, are they looking for capital growth? Are they looking for income generation? What are the objectives? And within those objectives, how much variance can they have? Because sometimes they have the ability to step outside of their main mandate by a little bit, but that has to be very clearly outlined in this investment objective statement. Yeah. And again, that's why there could be so many funds because you can have like five or six funds with like a 10% variance, but that 10% variance will meet a lot of different needs and will have a lot of different constraints with it. Yeah. And not everyone out there is looking just to invest in stocks. So when you're talking about the indexes that we did last week, so the S&P 500 or the TSX comp here in Canada, you're looking at a collection of stocks, of companies, shares in companies that are publicly traded. But a lot of people, especially as they're getting a little bit older, maybe their priorities change, their objectives change, and they might want something that's more of a blend of fixed income, so that's bonds, and stocks. And of course, you could go the route of buying a bond index and buying a stock index and putting the two together. But um, a lot of people want a little bit more than that, especially in the fixed income marketplace. For what it is, everybody thinks, oh, bonds are so boring. It's actually a very tricky marketplace to trade. And there's lots of things you need to be aware of. There's government bonds, there's high yield bonds, which sound great until you realize that they're actually lower grade. Uh, there's mortgage-backed securities that are floating around these days that uh, take some people back to 2008, but they're actually much more heavily regulated than what we saw coming out of the States. Uh, there's also the difference between corporate bonds, so a bond issued by one of these companies that you could be invested in as, as an investor. Um, so that usually gives you a little bit more yield than a government bond. But of course, there could be higher risk, right? Because you're you're counting on the strength of that company to be able to pay that obligation long term. Well, another big thing is a lot of these fund managers, they know where to look to find these companies and these bonds too. A lot of people kind of DIY themselves, those go whatever one is hot in the market, hot in the news right now. But there's a lot to be found in these smaller companies that you don't know about or the companies that act as like secondary agents. Like why invest in Coca-Cola where you can invest in a company like CCL who make containers or something like that. I'm not saying that's exact one to one, but it's look it's knowing where to look in the market to find these kinds of options where it's not just the big flashy company, but a lot of times it's all the secondary companies that are getting rich off these big companies by being suppliers and helping out with them. And that's why it can be good to have a fund management team because their job is essentially to do just that. It's to do all of the research that maybe you don't have the time to do or the interest to do. And also, I think even more importantly, is that they then have the ability to make these buy and these sell timing decisions for you. I mean, Cam, what's the most difficult part of investing? Timing. 
Exactly. You can make all the right decisions, but if you sell at the wrong time, you've obliterated a lot of the gains and potentially some of the the future growth if you're trying to time it back in. They say that to get a timing decision right, you have to get two separate decisions right. That's the sell and the buy, right? So you're you're choosing when to get out of a trade and then you're choosing when to get back in. Or I mean, you can think about it the other way too. You're choosing when to get in and you're choosing when to get out. Oh yeah, exactly. And this is just another reason why people like the act to manage. They just don't want to deal with all that extra hassle. They're fine paying someone in Tron to make those decisions and to keep an eye on not just our stock markets, but all the ones across the world and all the other carriers and bonds and commodities and currency fluctuations and everything else. It's It can be a lot to track if you don't know what you're doing. Yeah. And a lot of these bigger companies, they will have analysts in Toronto, like you said, but they will have them around the globe as well. Some of our larger companies that we deal with are literally on the clock 24-7 with their offices in different locations around the world. So there's always someone watching that particular country or that particular time zones developments for that period of time, because different markets are open at different points in time as well. So depending on if your fund has maybe some international content, that could be an important thing to have. You can't necessarily watch everything while you're sleeping. Oh, exactly. You just look at it this way. The stock market is always on. It may not be your stock market, but there is a stock market that is always on 24 hours a day. Well, we just kind of laid out some of the pros of why it's good to have actively managed. You got people watching the clock, looking at all the companies, doing all the legwork and the grunt work. But at the same time, these people aren't doing this for free. At the end of the day, they want to get paid for all this work because they're watching these funds balloon by millions of dollars and they want their cut to kind of compensate for their time and effort. So this is kind of where the MERS come in or the MERs, I should probably say. So how does that factor into our decisions here? Absolutely. The management expense ratio or the MER, this is really what's been the biggest hurdle in most people's minds when they talk about investing in Canada. Because in Canada here, of course, it's been pretty publicly made available that we do have higher management expense ratios than they have in some other countries as a comparison. And I think part of that is all of the things that have gotten included in the management expense ratio over time. So it's not just the fund management team that makes up the cost of your management expense ratio. It's also your advisor's fee, which in some cases can be stripped out if you're not receiving advice. And it's also the operating costs and taxes and insurance fees if you're in a segregated fund. All these extra things get added up together to come to that one percentage that you receive when you've got your management expense ratio showing on your fund profile. But it is something that you want to consider because when you look at your performance at the end of the day, your performance is going to be stated after fees. And that's where the real comparison begins. What you're wanting to do is to see after all of these costs, have you done better or have you done worse than you would have done in a comparable passive product? And when we were talking about indexing before, there are blends that can take into account uh, fixed income and a stock index if you're going into a fund that is not necessarily all stock, maybe something that's a little bit more balanced or even a little bit more conservative. Yeah. And a lot of it also comes down to research, which is why we always advocate getting a 
financial planner to talk to to help you narrow down these funds and these choices to make sure you are getting a good performing fund that's at a good rate. I guess something else we could probably mention too is a lot of carriers will offer discounted MERs if you have a higher amount to invest in that fund also. Yeah, and I think it goes beyond that too. It can also be looking at how the fund management team is compensated because that's something that can really influence their decisions. If you have a fund management team that's looking from quarter to quarter and having to compare quarter to quarter to their peers, then they're going to be more concerned with short-term performance. So their eye might not be on the longer term because they're trying to keep up on the short term to make a quick buck today. Whereas as a differentiator, we have access to teams that have their bonuses based on their overall performance throughout the entire year. So I know one fund management team that we follow and we like quite a bit that they can absolutely hit stellar outperformance numbers all throughout the year. But then if they have a negative performance, so if the fund dips below where it was at the beginning of that year, their bonus goes to zero regardless of anything else that they've done and no matter how else they've overperformed in that year, if, if there's a big market crash, they lose their bonuses. So they're correlated in a more long-term progressive thinking that is also managing the downside risk as opposed to just trying to make a quick buck because what good is a quick buck if you lose it all in the next big downturn? Exactly. And for most people, it's the long-term picture that they're looking for. It's a reason why a lot of people don't like brand new funds because they want to be able to look back three, five, 10 years after performance to see how they've been able to get out of the recessions and the lower periods. It's about seeing which fund manager took over at different times. You can have one fund that does great for 10 years, person in charge retires, new person comes in and the fund starts to falter and slip. So it's just seeing how it can perform over the long term. Because like I said, most people go on the street, you're doing this for RSPs, you're doing this for risks, you're doing it for RESPs, you're not doing this for a quick pump and dump flip strategy. This is your long-term goal. So you have to make sure these funds can sustain themselves, grow year to year. And if something does happen like the, what, three cataclysmic crashes we've had in the last decade or so that they can actually recover faster than some of the other funds that are out there, right? That's right. So like you said, looking at who is actually on that fund management team and what their personal track record is, as well as what the team's track record is collectively, that's a huge thing. And I will also uh, take a look at the net assets held in a fund because, and this is something that unless you're checking regularly, you probably won't notice, but you can actually see a fund grow in size because it's done well and more investors are pouring in, more advisors are making these recommendations to go into this fund and the fund is getting bigger and bigger and bigger versus a fund that their net assets are shrinking and you can see people sell, sell, sell. They're moving out of that fund and when that happens, it'll hit a certain point in time where there's not enough assets in these funds and it can become much more difficult for the fund managers to maybe have the capital to make a buy that they want to do or they have to sell something that they didn't want to have to sell in order to get out of a position. 
Or as we've seen some places do, they'll just raise the MERs to compensate for all this. Oh, yeah, we've seen that too. So you have to be watching because they're not necessarily going to announce it or tell you when they've made a change to the fee structure. It's got to be something that you or your advisor is keeping an eye on as well. And I mean, just to kind of continue my um, my little bit about the size of the fund, there is or there does seem to be a certain cap at which these funds get too big. So if a fund is very, very successful, there is something as a fund becoming a victim of its own success, where at a certain point in time, it's so large, they hold such big positions in certain companies that because of the regulations in the stock markets, they can only sell a holding very slowly because of the number of units that they have to sell over a period of time to get out of a position And they don't want to be viewed as trying to manipulate the market or anything like that. So it can be, there can be pros and cons. Well, exactly. Like a situation like that, you can have a fund that's like really, really popular among people with rifts. So you've got a lot of money being drawn out of it. And if it's too large and it could trigger off a cascade reaction for different companies when they have to do these sales to fund these rift payments, right? Yes, that's right. So when it's an income generating fund, like you would find in a RIF, and you can typically see it in the name, it'll say something and income. And that means one of the goals of the funds is to generate a certain amount of income. So they're aware that their unit holders are going to be redeeming units on a regular basis to make required payments. Like with your RIF, there's a required minimum that you have to take out every year. Okay, I think we covered that pretty well. Well, We talked about what an MER is, but one thing we haven't mentioned is when is this actually charged? So like how often does the fund manager come to your door asking for a percentage? Yeah, so the the easiest way that I like to think about this, and this is for the funds that I'm aware of. I'm not sure if they all do it exactly the same way, but the ones that we work with, essentially what it is, is everyone who's invested in the fund is in that same pool. So all of their money is pooled together and everyone in that pool with those objectives, they're all getting invested that same way, according to that fund's mandate. Now the management fee, it comes off the top a little bit every day because a lot of the trouble with the markets is timing them, right? Like we've said before. So to make it more equitable, they'll take the management expense ratio, they'll divide it by the 365 days of the year and a tiny little bit will come off the top That way, this fee is not being charged at an inopportune time. So you can't point at the fund managers and say, well, why did you charge the MER today, right? It's done gradually every single day. And that brings us to a very important point, because the most important thing is not necessarily the fee. And I know that comes as a bit of a shocker in a conversation about fees. They are important. And yes, you need to be very aware, not just in a percentage term, but in a dollar term, because the size of your account will determine how much of a dollar amount you're paying in your fee. But what's really important is how that fund has done after fees. So we call that the net return of the fund. It's after the fees, after any other costs, who has performed better? And this is where you really find out if your active management team has pulled its weight. So when we do comparisons, when we look at funds to funds, we are looking at things like 
if a fund went down in value because the market wasn't doing favorably during that period of time, how much did that fund go down compared to its peers or compared to its benchmark? And on the flip side of that, when it was time for the fund to recover, how many months, how long did it take to get out of that negative position, once again, compared to its peers? So how long were you in a position where you were losing money or just trying to climb back up to get to even. And that's all information that can be made available to you if you're running a comparison or if your advisor is doing a comparison. So the fee is a big part of it, but it's also the overall performance of that fund and how it's done year over year in different market conditions, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, yeah, so it's the net return on the fund itself and you have to factor in your own income tax brackets and the inflation rate. So a fund could say 10% is going to grow by, but you have to make sure you're pulling enough out of it after MERs, after taxes, after inflation compensation. So you can still have three, 4% left after all that, right? Yeah, that that is definitely on a personal basis. You're going to have to factor in all of the other costs that you'll have. And I mean, that's kind of why when you're talking to a financial advisor, they'll use rates of return published by FP Canada that seem really, really low. You know, around the 3% mark for a balanced portfolio seems pretty low, but it is to take into account all of these extra factors. So it's not just the MERs, it's not just the taxes and the inflation and all the stuff that comes along with it. Okay, well, we talked about how the fund managers get paid for all these funds, but let's say you go, you get yourself a professional financial planner. How do they also get compensated but through selling you these funds and making sure they take care of you along the way? Sure. So there's going to be different ways that a advisor can be compensated. In our case, we can either do fee-for-service work where we charge a flat dollar amount for our clients. And in that case, we usually don't do their investments. Perhaps they're just looking for someone to do some work for them. But as it kind of pertains to this conversation, when we're doing investments for individuals, there's something called sales charge options, or you might hear it as referred to as load types on your funds that are important because it'll tell you not just how your advisor is getting paid, but there can be some residual fees to yourself depending on the type of sales charge option that you have in your particular funds. So let's start with the least popular. The least popular is called deferred sales charges. And fortunately, especially recently, the industry has been moving away from these. And what they are is they would essentially pay your advisor a big upfront commission, but it would lock you into a schedule that could be up to eight years, sometimes longer, where if during that period of time you sold your funds, or let's say you weren't happy with your advisor and you wanted to make a change, then the fees would be charged to you as the investor. And that created all kinds of problems in the industry because People would be saying, oh, I wasn't aware of these funds. I didn't know this was going to cost me that much money. And so it's been a very, very positive thing that we've been moving away from that. On the other end of the spectrum, there's something called no load, which is exactly what it sounds like. So your advisor doesn't get a thing up front. 
In So in all cases, the advisor will receive a service fee, which is part of the management expense ratio that's going to be paid on a consistent basis as long as you're invested in that fund with that advisor or with any advisor, really. It's pretty standardized at this point across the industry. So if it's a front end zero, the advisor received nothing up front and there will be no charge to you. If it's front end and it's negotiable, the advisor will have a conversation with you and he can charge whatever percentage the two of you agree on up front. And finally, the industry has recently come out with something called advisor chargeback, where if the advisor wants to receive some commission up front, so it's lower than what it used to be with the deferred sales charges, but it is still something that can represent financial planning work or things like that. They will receive that fee up front when you do the investment, but if you sell before the schedule runs out, and they're typically shorter schedules, they're about three to four years in a lot of cases, I've seen them go as low as two years then it will be the advisor who gets the charge back and not you. So there's still no charge to you for choosing that option. And finally, the last choice is the advisor can elect not to have their fee included in the fund. And if they do that, they'll choose a fee-only type fund where they'll negotiate either a dollar amount or percentage with you separately, and they will bill you individually outside of the fund. So it could still be a similar amount, but it's no longer going to be embedded in that fund cost and in that MER. Just out of curiosity, which is the one that's probably the most popular for you right now of these different options? Oh, I would say for our firm, for years and years and years, by a mile, we probably have 90, 95% of our business, if not more, in uh, front end zero or no load funds. So in a lot of cases, we do not take commission up front. We'll essentially just take it as part of a servicing fee on an ongoing basis, which gives us incentive too to make sure that we're keeping up with the clients, to make sure that their plans are up to date, and to make sure that there's that constant communication happening between us. Okay, so enough about the cost of everything. Um, Is there a chance that active managers can actually outperform indexes and other options? We talked about what some of what they did, what they charge, but are there managers out there who can really outperform what they're charging and providing? Yes. I mean, even if you look at all the studies out there that seem to prefer passive investing, they will still acknowledge that a good fund management team can outperform if they've got really good research, really good access to market data. The thing with the market is instant information is aggregated pretty well immediately. It becomes publicly available to everyone at the same time. And the people that are working on these things get all this information all at once. So we have seen fund management teams that are more forward thinking. And we have actually also seen fund management teams where they'll hedge their own positions. So whether things go up or down, because no one can control the timing of certain events, they'll be covered on the upside, but also on the downside. So that's a thing that you can see as well. But going back to the question, there is absolutely active management that can consistently 
outperform the indexes. It's just finding the teams that do that. And it's usually one person, right? It's usually the guy at the top, the portfolio manager who makes all the big decisions and he's been doing it for years and years and years and he's real good at his job and we do see that we certainly have a few of those and we like to follow them pretty closely and see what decisions they're making well exactly and if they leave like we had one carrier where their number one fund manager left so we've been kind of just keep an eye out to see if we want to stick with some of these funds going forward with the new guy something you'd really have to pay attention to right Oh, absolutely. We've had companies in the past where the rock star left and basically we stuck with the company for a while after that. But after a couple of years, it was pretty clear that this was nowhere close to what it had been in its glory days. And then you kind of just go to the competition and say, okay, you know what, it's time to make a change. The other time that active management can really outperform is at certain times in the market cycle, different styles will take the forefront. So there are times to go for growth-oriented stocks, and there are times to go for maybe more value-oriented stocks that are a little bit more conservative or maybe a little bit more defensive in nature. And there will be times where certain sectors will outperform, and certain funds, like we said, will put emphasis on different sectors over others. So that's something to take into consideration. So it's really being aware of where we are in the market cycle and how your particular fund fits the bill and handles the expectations and the realities that are going to come with either a growing or a contracting economic condition. And there's lots of factors that can be involved. Going back to the beginning, we promised at the start of the podcast to kind of talk about how to help someone choose one of these actively managed funds. We kind of went over all of the little minutiae, the things you need to know about how they work, what the costs are. But what advice can you give people to actually help them choose one of these funds, either themselves or when they're working with a financial planner? Absolutely. The first thing that I'll tell people is to get the appropriate regulatory information for their fund choice. So that will be the fund facts document, and it'll also be a fund profile. And you'll also get from your advisor or from whichever company that you're dealing with, uh, something called the information folder, which will give you all the information that you wanted to know and more about the product that you're invested in. So it goes at all three levels, the fund level, the product level, and its appropriateness for you. Yeah, according to the regulators, the fund facts and the information folder, your financial planner has to give you these things. It's part of their regulatory code, then you get fined if they don't. So if they refuse to give you this paperwork, it's a big red flag. And it's going to give you the information that you really want to know. So for myself, when I'm looking at a fund and when I'm doing a comparison between funds, the absolute number one thing that I'm looking at I'm looking over, is that a generic balance fund you're looking at? It is. You know what? I printed a couple of these and I did a quick comparison just before we started to record this so that I could have in front of me the information that I have in front of me every day when I'm working with clients. So in this particular case, the first thing that I'm taking a look at is the overall asset allocation of the fund. And an asset allocation is just the ratio of stocks to bonds, to cash. But this allocation is probably the most important thing in a fund because it's going to tell you how much you're participating in the market, how much is in a bond, and how much is on the sidelines in cash. 
And a lot of these funds, the uh, risk profile, so like the the one to five rating is determined by what that mix is between bonds, cash and stocks, right? Yeah. So those two things right off the bat can tell you if it's in the same ballpark. If you identify as being a low risk profile investor and you're handed a fund that's mostly in stocks, you'll see right away that the risk profile is going to be higher than what you're comfortable with. And you might say, hmm, maybe this isn't the right fund for me. Another thing that I look at when I'm looking at the asset allocation is the cash. So high cash can actually mean one of two things. It can mean that for the funds mandate, they just can't find things that fit the criteria to buy that are at a good price right now. That's typically true with value managers where they're hunting for deals, they're deal hunting all the time. But also we've seen when fund managers start to get worried that a market is getting overheated, you'll see the cash holding climb up gradually. And sometimes, you know, it's not even gradual. They'll sell like a stock or something like that, and they'll just put it in cash and they'll keep it there. And sometimes they'll keep it there for a couple months just because they're not wanting to jump back in right away. So when you start seeing cash reserves getting high across the board, depending on the type of fund you're in, that can be a bit of a little bit of a red flag. Well, yeah, this plays into something we talked about last week where a lot of like the best investors and fund managers tend to do the opposite of what everyone else is doing. So a lot of them will have this cash on hand. So when people start to panic and prices start to crash, they'll go out and buy a whole bunch of shares in different companies at a good discount. Yeah, and we've seen at parts in the market cycle right before crashes where we'd seen a number of our top performing funds, it would creep up consistently. And these are different companies and totally different fund management teams. So you just know that they're looking at these data points that are telling them it's just not the time to go all in. But uh, I should say as well, in that investment objective section that we talked about earlier on, there may be a limit to how much cash that fund can hold. So I like to choose, especially in markets that are tough like this, when there's a lot of uncertainty across the board, I like giving the fund managers full discretion and having as few restrictions as possible on how much cash to bond to stock that they can go in. Whereas if you have a fund that says we need to keep 60 to 65% equities at all times and they see a big problem coming down the road, they cannot do anything about it because they have to hold to their fund mandate first. So be very, very aware of what the fund is designed to do and what constrictions they have in place that might limit your fund manager who still has all the right information. He just doesn't have the ability to make that trade. Exactly. We saw in 2020, for example, a lot of these funds that had a lot of these heavier restrictions, they got pretty decimated during that year. Some of them have recovered since then, but during that time, there were a lot of nervous people watching their funds perform the way they did. But at the same time, the funds were restricted to the point where they couldn't take advantage of some of the other opportunities where like, where like Tesla and healthcare were spiking. A lot of these funds were locked into things that were just struggling through throughout that entire year. Right. So when people would call us for a second opinion and we'd see this, we could quickly point out to them, well, here, here's what we think is what's going on, because this fund manager has otherwise had a great performance history, but now he's in a space where maybe his hands are tied. 
Yeah, and your money just didn't disappear forever. Sometimes it just takes time to recover and get through some of these trouble spots, right? That's right. So let's move on to the next big thing that I like to take a look at when I'm looking at the fund and the fund composition, geographic allocation. Now, this is incredibly important to me because we focus largely on North America in these conversations. So that's Canada and the US. But there are a lot of opportunities that are available at different points in time in the market cycle internationally. And it really has become a more globalized economy out there. So we need to make sure if you're choosing funds with international content, that there is a research team available that knows those markets incredibly intimately, and preferably that lives in that marketplace as well, so that they get not just the news feed, but also the day-to-day experience of what's actually happening in that location. A lot of people just say, oh, it's international fund. And that's all I really tell you. It's just understanding where this is coming from. Is it coming from European Union? Is it coming from Singapore? Is it coming from Africa? It's just knowing where these opportunities are being found and how sustainable they can be if they're growing, if they're receding. You need to know more than just having international stamped on it because international can mean different things to different people. Oh, sure. And there's always going to be different geopolitical risks that come up in play. There's going to be different trade agreements and trade deals. And currency is a huge part of it, right? Because if it's going to have to convert back into Canadian dollars, what will that impact have? I mean, we saw over the last number of years with the U.S. Canadian dollar, U.S. funds did incredibly well just because of the dollar conversion coming back this way. And it made up a huge additional portion of the yield in a fund that was invested in the States beyond what the actual performance of the underlying companies was. So currency can either be an accelerator or it can be a decelerator as well, depending on which country you're trading with and where the dollar is pegged. But it is an additional risk factor. And finally, I like to take a look at the sector allocation. Now, you've heard us talk about this before, but it's really just breaking down the categories, the different components or different parts of the economy that you could be invested in. So popular sector allocations can be things like financials, industrials, information technology, healthcare, communications, energy, and so on and so forth. But it's trying to figure out how much of your portfolio is in these different parts that'll perform very differently under different economic circumstances. Yeah, even just looking at the the fun facts you printed out, the the sector allocation looks a lot like the TSX index does with financials right at the top with the biggest holding, but well... It's Canada, so it's financials or nothing right now, right? Yeah, but that is something to be aware of. You want to make sure that the fund you're choosing isn't just a closet indexer. I think a lot of the funds get some pressure because they know they're going to be compared to some form of index. So sometimes you'll see when funds maybe don't have that rock star fund manager, they'll just say, okay, let's just keep close to what our peers are doing. We're not going to be better. We're not going to be worse. We're just going to be playing the middle field. I mean, that's really not what you want. You want to do something above and beyond that. And diversification within a portfolio, we're talking about one fund here, one fund there at this point in time. But when you're actually building your portfolio, you're going to have more than one fund. 
Oh, yeah, exactly. We, well, we got some clients with one fund. We have other clients with like eight or nine different funds because they want to kind of mix and match and take these different advantages from different places and mix it all into their big portfolio. Well, and that's exactly it. It's understanding how those funds complement each other or offset certain portions of risk at different points in time or even counterbalance to a certain extent, right? Um, so that's part of the decision that you'll have to make as an investor. Do you want all your funds running in the same direction where you could have five balance funds that are basically doing the same thing? You just didn't realize it because maybe you didn't take that extra couple minutes to look through the actual breakdown and how it's invested. Just because you have funds with different names doesn't necessarily that they're doing different things. There's just too many other things you have to look at and compare before you do. Well, yeah, exactly. So you can have it by sector or even a country. Like we talked about last week where a quote unquote balanced portfolio of balanced index in Canada will have a very different mix than one of the states. So you pick up both and you got a lot more of your bases covered, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And there are definitely benefits to diversifying. I mean, the U.S. has a much broader economy than we do in terms of where you can invest. So for a number of years, we had a big focus there just because there was more opportunity. And at this point in time right now, this year, Canada has been outperforming because people want the stability of a strong financial sector. So we've been seeing that really play through this year. Well, another way to kind of narrow down these funds is look at their top 10 holdings. So that kind of paints a picture of what the whole fund's going to look like, because this is just sort of like the ones they are most confident in. So you have to think that they're also investing in competitors and in similar industries, right? It'll be the ones that have the highest weights in that particular portfolio. And depending on how heavy those weights are, it can add up. Some portfolio managers will have smaller funds that don't necessarily have a lot of stock in them. Some can have hundreds of stock. So again, it really, really varies in terms of how much each particular stock is actually taking up. But yes, it is good to be able to see kind of who's in the top and who's not. Well, yeah, and I've seen some funds where I'll have like three of the five big banks, one, two, three. So that kind of gives you a picture of what they're trying to do with a fund like that, right? Sure. Yeah. Maybe you'll look at the sector breakdown and you'll see that financials is the top sector and that can help explain why. And even though it's only the top 10 funds that are usually shown, you can or the advisor can go back to the fund companies and get a comprehensive list of all of the holdings in a fund if that's something that you're interested in. And like I said, it can really vary. Sometimes it's a small number. Sometimes it's a very large number of stocks and bonds. But uh, if you find that you need some help going through all of this and you're located in BC, as always, give us a shout at Braun Financial, braunfinancial.com. You can send us an email. You can give us a call. We're always happy to meet new people. But I think that's uh, probably it for today. So until the next time, take care and all the best.